Happy Monday morning, everyone. Welcome to Kafaru Cast. I'm running solo. Frank the Tank is doing paperwork uh, right now because he took the weekend off. As all of you may have seen, he was in a kind of a tuxedo in uh, Iowa at his sister's wedding. Make sure and hop on Kafaru Cast uh, Instagram page and make fun of him. Uh, today, we have a you know, well, we always say we have a special guest. This guy actually is a special guest. Super cool. I've known him through phone and email for quite some time, as well as reading his uh, articles. Uh, you, Kevin Estella, some of you probably read of his articles. Thanks for hopping on. Hey, thanks for having me here today, Aaron. This is so cool. Finally seeing the the place where all my good stuff has come from. This is awesome. Yeah, because you're, you're back east. You Connecticut, Virginia? Where Where is it? Uh, I'm in Connecticut. Connecticut. Yeah. Okay. And then what do you – because I only know you from limited emails, chit-chatting a little bit, and then really more reading articles because you you write for, what, six, seven, eight magazines or more than that probably? Yeah. To, to date, I think I've been in like 17 different publications, but I'd say there's about a half a dozen that I write for pretty religiously. Gotcha. And what are those just so people know where to look for you? Uh, guys, if you want to find me, you can look for me in uh, the Recoil Network magazines, which are Recoil, Recoil Off-Grid, Recoil Carnivore. Survivor's Edge is another one. Knives Illustrated, American Frontiersman. You know, just take a take a look through the magazine aisle of the supermarket or Walmart, and you know, you might see my name in the table of contents. You'll be in there somewhere. Somewhere. Gotcha. And then you're you're kind of like uh, Indiana Jones. Normally, you're a history teacher. <laughs> history teacher by day, and uh, kind of semi professional adventurer by night, and on on summer break, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you have a whip in there and whip the shit out of your students? You know, uh, I, I swear to God, I did dress up like Indiana Jones one time because my kids were, were laughing at me about that. And I did bring in a bullwhip. <laughs> and if you ever want to see a bunch of high school kids run, just crack the bullwhip a few times in, in the middle of the gym. And, you know, it sounds like gunfire. Probably not the best thing in a in the age with, you know, school shootings to make something that, that breaks the sound barrier and sounds like a gun. But Yeah, no kidding. Especially, well, probably in the day and age of um, – millennials and metrosexuals as well. Um, I don't know how that is. You wouldn't want to whip that thing in Boulder. You'd probably get fired for God's sake. Uh, but so, and then you teach um, survival classes from time to time as well, correct? That's correct. Yes. I started off in uh, 2007 with the Wilderness Learning Center under Marty Simon. I was his lead survival instructor from there uh, or over there from 2007 to 2012. Started my own company in 2011 and I've been teaching bushcraft and survival skills pretty much anywhere the you know, the, the students pop up. So I could fly out to Washington, teach a class there, been out to the UK, been down to Florida, been been all over teaching this. Gotcha. And then how, just, you know, for for, for listeners, um, you know, obviously, you, I'm guessing anyway, you have a social media page, you have a website, kind of list all of that stuff sure. off as well. Sure. Um, on Instagram, you guys can find me the the Instagram handle is Estella Wild Ed, short for Estella Wilderness Education. That's the name of the company on Facebook as well. So Estella Wilderness Education. And my website is just kevinestella.com. And that's I don't update the website as much as I do social media. And the website is really there just to you know give important announcements about upcoming trips and whatnot, some more information about me. But Instagram, Twitter, Estella Wild Ed, Facebook, Estella Wilderness Education, and my website, KevinEstella.com. Perfect, perfect. Now, because I do make fun of uh, frequently survival experts, um, I've never made fun of you. So <laughs> <laughs> um, how many um, – 
because I've been on a myself both ends of the spectrum where I uh, what I would say practiced uh, and studied the, the you know, quote unquote trade uh, where I went the balls to the walls trying to survive off of snares and uh, you know trip wires and uh, the full nine to where I'm at now where I'm like if I'm in that much trouble I'm in deep shit so I'm probably just gonna not practice that as much because a lot of that stuff in my opinion is like math it's it's perishable you have to practice land nav. You have to practice not tying. Even bigger building like figure four deadfalls. Like I went a couple of years without building one. It took me a minute to get all the different angles right and everything set up correctly. Do you go to that full depth, or do you kind of a happy medium when you teach it, or what do you kind of focus on? Are you are you are you uh, do you do much land nav, or or what is it you kind of uh, how how do you run your I guess your schools your classes? Yeah, sure. Um, I do a dedicated land navigation class, which is a, a day-long class, and it's a very abbreviated version. Uh, when I was at the Wilderness Learning Center, we would teach navigation over three days. And the first day, we would strictly learn how to use your map and strictly learn how to use your body to measure the distance that you travel with pacing. And, you know, we, we used very, very crude uh, natural indicators of direction. So... That was day one. Day two, we learned the compass inside and out. And we went to the depth of learning how to use UTM grids, you know, for the, those that don't want to rely on GPS. Day three is when we would go into using map and compass. So, you know, when you have one, you're you're not completely screwed. When you have two, you're, you're doing much better. Um, when I do the, the abbreviated class, people hit saturation point very quickly. You know, when they start realizing, wow, there's there's a lot of depth and breadth to learning this material. So I try to run a happy medium. I try to give people enough information. But then, you know, a hallmark of the way that I teach is I always give people ways of, of modifying their training. You know, you know, there's always that expression, if it's if it's raining, we're not training. Well, you know, there's always ways that you can make your yourself stronger, more efficient or whatever. Um, you know, and I can't go into all the details in a 24-hour uh, course or a, a three-day course that I could in a seven-day. And I tell people, look, I'm going to give you the, the basic skill sets to get you going. But like you said, it's perishable. It's like riding a bicycle. Some things you do remember, you never forget the feel of it. Other things you have to keep doing or else you're going to, you know, you're going to lose the ability that you once had when you were really uh, on top of your game practicing it, you know, more religiously. Um, so, yeah, there's, I mean... In terms of in terms of the skills, like I, I try to give everyone in my class uh, the information that they need, and I always tell them if there's ever any questions, never hesitate to ask me, and I'll tell you if I don't know it, I'll get back to you. But um, you know, there's never a point where I've had students say, "Well, I never learned anything," or "I never learned enough." Mm -hmm. You know, there's always a way to to teach someone, even the most experienced person, a way of uh, experiencing something for the first time, so they get a new perspective on it. Gotcha. Yeah, no, no, for, for sure. Um, how long are your classes normally? Uh, right now, most of the classes are either day or weekend long. Mm -hmm. uh, in the past, I have done, you know, seven-day private courses. Um, I At the Wilderness Learning Center, we used to do week-long. But right now, people, they want skills. They want them fast, which... It's America, man. Yeah. Give, <laughs> it, to, it, give right it to me yesterday. Now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they want skills really quickly, and they don't have... Uh, a week long of vacation time to take. So I try to get things in and out real fast, you know, usually a day long or two days long or at most show up on a Friday, leave on a Sunday. Man, I, I tell you the amount of um, message, I get a lot of messages just, and it could be from footwear to anything, but the one that, and for all of you listening, please um, don't send me any more messages wanting to learn Lion Nav on a text. Um, I, if you send me a message 
and you say, hey, can you do uh, – and, and the only reason I'm bringing this is because you're on here. Um, there's many other people other than me that can teach land nav. Um, and, and it's only – you can find some good info on YouTube and you can find some good resources. I strongly suggest for people truly wanting to learn land nav, which I think is extremely important, to pay someone like Kevin. I don't do it, so don't call me. Uh, to just fly out and, and, and it again, I don't believe a day is enough. I don't believe two days is enough or three. It will get you going. Uh, some of the courses I took were one, two, three, four weeks where you're really, you're learning everything you can possibly about one aspect, meaning the GPS or excuse me, not the GPS, the compass, one aspect of the map, let's say reading terrain on the map and then how to do terrain association on the ground. And then you also have the aspect of now putting what it looks like on the map to what it looks like in the field. You can't do that in a text. You can't do it in a day. You can get close. And I'm not saying like with what you do, Mm -hmm. I think it's great. If you're going to feed someone through a fire hose, the best way to do it is how you described it. One day of one thing, one day of the next. But when you start transferring from um, a UTM, like a 10-digit UTM grid coordinate on the map, plotting that out, and then going on the ground from one 10-digit grid UTM to the next, and then using the declination diagram to convert from magnetic to grid, grid to magnetic, when you do all that, you're probably confused just from me talking about it. Imagine Kevin trying to teach you that shit in a day. It is not going to happen unless you're a very intelligent and you just you'd be a guy I've never met, right? You, it takes a lot. So, would you be if people have the, um, I guess the, uh, uh, the 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 time off to do that? Are you open to things like that for people to just come out just to learn land that? I, I'm absolutely open to that. The one thing I tell everyone though is they have to be completely honest with themselves and honest with me. You know, it, it's. It's one thing to say, oh, I've done it before in the past. Well, what does that mean? You know, would, oh, you've looked at a map before. You have a compass, right? Don't get oh, me going. You're, you're, I know how to read a compass. You're an intermediate because you have the stuff. You're not a total beginner. But, you know, it, I'm, I'm totally open to that. And I I love helping people learn how to how to take something that's two-dimensional and apply it to a three-dimensional world. And, you know, something that if anyone listeners here want to try it, you know, a lot of guys have a hard time learning topography and and how the features look on the map and how they translate to what it looks like in the three-dimensional world. So I have a lot of my students take pieces of cardboard and then they'll trace out what the topography looks like on the cardboard and then stack up the little cardboard cookies until they can create valleys, until they can create mountain peaks, plateaus and whatnot. So there's so many different things that you can do at home. And, you know, if you were to come out and take a class or if you were to come out and want to, you know, learn how to do land nav the right way, well, you can do some home study before you get there so we don't have to start completely fresh. Right. And I will say um, one of the reasons I personally do not um, teach this, want to have or, or any kind of survival school uh, is on my personal opinion, it is more of a pain in the ass than you are willing to pay um, from my limited knowledge of, of trying to help people out. It, it is a skill set that is lost. Not many people know it. Those that do and are, are masters at land navigation, it should be expensive to learn it correctly from them because you're not going to learn it from very many people correctly. And I'm not pimping. Kev- I don't even know if Kevin can nav. He just told me he could, so I'm assuming he can. But meaning that um, if you're going to have a guy like Kevin teach you and Kevin is proficient – it's not going to be free. It's going to cost you. It's just like anything. If you hire – and this is what kills me. If you hire a personal trainer to 
go to the gym, if you go and take uh, Kimpo or you take jujitsu, you're going to pay a premium price to learn a premium skill set. In my opinion, land nav is one of those skill sets that not only not that many people know how to use uh, or or perform, even less people know how to teach it correctly. And to find someone that can do one is proficient at it, two teach it to where you can retain it. That's hard, and that's going to cost money. So I, I would say I don't know what you charge or anything like that. I think it is worth it for someone to come out and learn those skills because then you can practice them. Once you have them, you can practice them all the time on your own, which you'll have to do because that shit does go away. I land that to, in my for my pea brain. I got to do it all the time, or I'll lose it. Yeah, and Aaron, to your point, you know the to give you an idea of the importance of this. At the Wilderness Learning Center, and when I teach my classes, I always do a mindset debrief first, and I tell people about the concept of readiness and how that's super important. But then the, one of the the first skills that is taught is land nav because so many of these accidents and these survival situations, these emergencies that happen, happen because people get lost. They have no freaking clue where they are. So if you can avoid getting lost in the first place, you're probably not going to have to suffer through an emergency, a, a survival situation or, or whatever. Um, you know, and in terms of, you know, the cost of everything, like you said, you know, you, you get what you pay for, you know, you can go online and to a, a YouTube guy and, and watch it, but he's not going to be there over your shoulder. And, you know, there's a difference between someone who's going to instruct it and then someone who's going to coach it. And you have to be able to, to do that as well. You have to tell someone, Hey, you're doing this, but here's how you can do it better. And that's really what sets apart a lot of these instructors and, and trainers is the ability, not just to present material, but also to coach you because who cares if I can do it? I want my student to be able to do it as good or if not better than me when they're done. Right. No, 100%. And I mean, I think with all the po- – I mean, and I've had great feedback with all the, the podcasts that, that I've done where this subject pops up. One of the reasons that this is super beneficial and obviously this is more of a, of a hunting podcast where it comes into in hunting as well as just – you know, if you're put yourself in an emergency situation, but for, for hunting, if you're relying on your GPS to navigate, generally you're looking at that thing all the time, right? Like you got to look down. Um, not all the time, but you're generally, well, from my experience, when I'm not leading the way and watching someone, they're not looking around. They're looking at the GPS, following the little arrow, which on most GPS sucks because you got to be moving and the fucker bounces around all over. And for the way that I do it, I very rarely use a actual GPS. I have um, the Sunto Traverse Alpha or like a Garmin 401 or 601 Fortrex, and I just need a 10-digit grid. I plot that 10-digit grid from, let's say if I'm totally like effed up, I don't know where I'm at exactly. I just turn that bad boy on. It gives me a 10-digit UTM grid, which is universal transmercator. I think I pronounced that right. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Um, some of those things are part I leave out because I really don't care because I know how to do it. So I would be a horrible coach. Um, once I know where I'm at, and, and Kevin hop in here, uh, you know, as I talk about this, once I know where I'm at and I know where I need to go, I've got the 10-digit grid of where I'm at and I plot that out on the map. Um, so I make my little X of where I am. And then I know I want to go to this basin, which is, let's say, three miles um, and it's to my north northwest or whatever I don't pick it 23 degrees away I know at that point my general direction of travel and I don't put more effort into it than the general direction of travel because after that I look at the map and I find handrails catching features things that I don't have to pay attention to shit really to get me close 
to get another 10-digit grid to get me exactly there. So I'm doing some rough analysis on the way there, meaning I got a river to my left if I hit. I know I've bounced too far. I got a mountain range to my right. Other than that, I'm hunting my ass all the way to that next point to where I have a catching feature that's going to kind of stop me, and that's going to say, hey, dummy, just to plot another 10-digit grid, you're getting close. And that allows me to have total situational awareness the entire time so I can actually hunt. Um, would you say that is, would you agree with that or disagree with that as far as on a hunting application? Well, I mean, if you think about it, hunters keep their heads up, prey keep their head down. So if you're constantly looking down on a GPS, what exactly are you? You know, let's be honest here. Um, something that comes up all the time, and it doesn't matter if you're hunting or if you're fishing or if you're backpacking or whatever, is like you said, you you use general waypoints in the distance to, to, you know, serve as beacons, like, Hey, that's where I need to go. What a lot of guys forget is that that destination where you're going, isn't just where you're going to be hunting. It's actually where you started. So right from the beginning, you should always take a back bearing. And along the way, when you stop and you take your break or whatever, you know, take a moment and look behind you because the features always look different on the way back. You know, and that's something that, that throws off students all the time is that they don't look behind them. And like you said, with situational awareness, people think, okay, I'm going to fixate on that mountain. Well, if you just fixate, it doesn't matter if you're doing self-defense and you're fixating only on the weapon or you're fixating, uh, you know, you know, uh, at the summit, if you're backpacking, well, that type of shit can get you killed. You know, you, you tunnel gotta... vision can be bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, in bringing that up is a very good point. Um, you know, what just talking about on navigation now in the case of with us, thank God, we generally don't have to go back to where we started. Um, which on a hunting standpoint, which is a bit different than survival, the, the most important thing is that we know how to, we, Whatever unknown point we're going to, we can give that to someone and get there. And that could be back the way we came. That could be, I mean, 360 degrees to the compass. We could be anywhere. But keeping that situational awareness, knowing, like you said, what's behind you, what's around you, what's going on is extremely important. And it makes you, as far as on a hunting standpoint, a much better hunter and thorough because you have no fear no matter where you go. You have no fear of getting lost because you know you have the skill set that you are never lost because you have the ability to find out where you are. No matter if you have a watch, a GPS, you can terrain associate, you can triangulate, you can do whatever you need. And again, I can't stress enough to find someone like Kevin to teach you this uh, because most of the reason, in my opinion, uh, people are unsuccessful on hunting situations as well as people get themselves into sticky situations when they're just out hiking is not having that skill set you talked about to um, to go farther, uh, I guess you could say, uh, not to quote, copy first light, go farther, stay longer. You literally have the every bit of skill set you need to get off the trail anywhere, go anywhere and get back. And a GPS sometimes won't do that for you, generally because they fail. Um, you know, in my opinion, anyway, batteries die. Uh, you don't know how to read it correctly. And then you don't have the um, 
the, the knowledge or skill set to actually read the map. So knowing how to do all of those things, I think, is, is very, very important. Now, do you teach GPS as well? I stay completely out of that arena. I mean, there are, GPSs are, are like laptop computers. It seems like there's a new one that comes out every single year, and it makes the other ones that were out there before obsolete. So I might go into a few basics about GPS if a student brings one and says, hey, how can I turn this thing on? How can I plot a course? How can I, uh, you know, use it to just get my, my general, you know, bearings? But I don't spend a lot of time there. You know, what we what I actually do is I do the total opposite. I spend a lot of time teaching students about pacing, you know, because the map and the compass are great for showing direction and place, but distance traveled and knowing yourself is really important. And from a hunting application, something that people uh, should know is that, you know, when you're when you're learning something like pacing, where you're learning how far a single stride of your body is and, you know, single paces, that that's going to change with footwear. It's going to change with the gear that you have. It's going to change with the terrain, the time of day, your level of fatigue and so on and so on. So, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with, with GPS because that constantly changes, but I do spend a lot of time with each individual student and I show them how their body and their particular gear and, and some of the skills that they can always have with them, whether, you know, their batteries die or not, you know, those are the things that I really focus on. Right. And, and get to give uh, to go in more depth with that, with what Kevin's talking about, when you talk about pace count, you're going to have a, a flat pace count. I do mine every time my left foot hits the ground. I used to wear these little bead things that look dumber than hell. They're like a, a Benoit bead in a miniature <laughs> version for those who know that is. And every time you go 100 meters, you slide that bad boy up. You got 10 of them. Once you hit 10, you slide one full. Um, there's two sets of them to let you know you've gone 1,000 meters. Um, very generic way to explain it. But what's important is that, you know, let's say your flat pace count is every, let's say 63 times your left foot hits the ground, you're at a hundred meters or a hundred yards or whatever generic numbers here. Okay. That's with a 15 pound pack or less and comfortable shoes on flat ground. Okay. Now you have flat ground with a 60 pound ruck on. All right. That pace count's going to change some. Then you have a rough terrain pace count. That's going to change dramatically, but that rough terrain pace count is going to be different from a 15-pound pack to a 60-pound ruck. Having a basic idea of roughly what you're going to what, – what your pace count is in all those situations, and in my opinion, it doesn't have to be um, perfect until you're looking for perfection on what you're doing, meaning – if you're on a land navigation course, it's got to be pretty fucking perfect. If you don't have a GPS, like you need to be balls on money because you're looking for a freaking sign that generally has two 10-digit grid coordinates on it, one to confirm where you're at and the next one to confirm where you're going. At that point, you have got to know exactly what your pace count is and how far you've traveled to get to that that sign. And a lot of times that little sign is hard to find. Now, if you're looking for a basin, doesn't have to be overly accurate, right? You're looking for a giant basin. I don't, for what I do now, have to pay attention because I'm not looking for an exact intersection of a trail because I'll just hit the trail somewhere and walk down until I hit the intersection. But as you learn land navigation more and more and more in depth, you will know cheats basically. And I say cheats, that's probably not the right word, but you will have, you will know enough to say, oh, once I hit this ridgeline, my pace count is semi out the door or it is for me. Now I'm just going to follow the ridgeline down and I'll run into the basin. But if you're looking for a rock in that basin, because there's some magical, uh, you know, I don't know, the leprechaun left a pot of gold under that fucker, you will need to know your exact pace count. And it sounds like you go through that pretty thoroughly. Very much so. Yes. 
Gotcha. I probably went into it a little too thorough there, but you guys get the idea. Now, do you go into like fire building, um, things like that as well? Like, are you out there with the, the stick and like going like <laughs> spinning it in circles, all the shit that I hate? What's that other one called where you go back and forth? The fire plow. The plow. Yeah, yeah. That one sucks balls too. All of those suck. But do you go into all that? Yeah. So the, the basic idea with, with any of the skills that I teach, I always work from the highest, <clears throat> highest methodology backwards. So I want people to, to feel and accomplish and, and and to be successful before they experience failure. So I've had little kids make fires. There's going to be a lot of failure with a fire plow, oh, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, oh, here we go. So with, with fire starting, I want people to know how to make fire. So if nothing else, you're going to leave your house with the, the shit that you need to, to make fire, right? Like I don't want someone to go out there who has made a bow drill fire four times to think that he's going to rely on that. So I want people to experience success long before they experience failure. But then I get the students to a point where, okay, you've learned how to do all the modern fire starting techniques, you know, the ferrocerium rod and the uh, Vaseline cotton balls, you know, which, you know, that's honestly the cat's ass right there. Like those I get things. yelled at because I call a ferro rod all the time a flint and steel because I just chunk up everything. And I get these fucking survival experts that yeah. get on there and correct me. It's like, dude, look, one – I don't really care, but two, I've just generically called it a flint. I know it's not that, but then they'll break it down like exactly what everything does. But there is a difference. Yeah, people get butt hurt over over terms, and it's like, dude, if it works, it works. Yeah, <laughs> like, but I mean, but what you're saying is is a hundred percent in agreement. I, I agree a hundred percent. It's you walk, you know, you get you you got to crawl, then you got to walk, then you run, then you sprint. I would say the crawling is you got a lighter and you got all the I use uh, I, I use those um, trioxane tablets because mm-hmm. um, I'm lazy and uh, cotton balls and Vaseline, whatever to get a fire going. I would say that's kind of crawling, um, right? And then you bridge it up basically is what you're saying. So you have immediate success. So you, yeah, if you stick someone out and tell them to use a fire plow, pretty much you're probably gonna die because you're probably not gonna get that thing going without crawling and going on so on and so forth first. Yeah, and I mean, like from from like the most modern techniques, you can go to wooden matches. Like people forget how wooden matches have been around for a really long time, but there's even a correct way of lighting a match. You know, where you're supporting the head, and you know, you're you're not just like holding it from the you know the, the wooden handle part of the the match. Wooden matches, flint and steel. You know, I, I go into that, and then we go into the fire by friction. And in the Northeast, uh, you're probably going to find the most success with the bow and drill. On a good day, I can make a bow and drill set in about 30 minutes to 45 minutes if I have the right materials. But there's a science just into knowing what's the correct wood to use for the, you know, the fireboard. What's the correct wood to use for the spindle, which is essentially the same wood, so they wear equally. Um, you know, we don't really do a lot of the hand drill. The hand drill is fantastic in the the Midwest, where the moisture content in the wood is somewhere down around three percent. But in if the, you try to do one with a hand drill, guaranteed you won't be uh, punching your clown for a week for the first time you do it because your hands will be so raw. Uh, in my, <laughs> from my experience of learning all of these. I literally thought, just fucking kill me. Or I could literally trying to uh, – with the hand drill in the, in the plow, it took so long to get one going when I first started, right, learning how – because it, we didn't have the right wood. I didn't know – if you don't have yeah. the right wood, in my opinion, you might as well just give up. You have got to have the right – you know, the correct materials. Yeah, some wood, it's got too much resin in it. 
and I'm not talking about the resin that you guys probably know about here in Colorado that's legal everywhere. Um, <laughs> but we're talking about like the it, the resin will just bind and it gets all gunky and you know nasty. That's not going to be a good good wood for making any uh, friction fires. Or the wood will be too hard and you know it's not gonna it's not gonna create the dust that you need because it's just not wearing down. You know you try doing some of these fire you know friction fires with a hardwood like uh, you know American Hornbeam. You know, or Osage Orange. I mean, good God, you're you're going to be working all day. You'll probably put yourself into the grave before you warm yourself up. Right, right, for sure. And I mean, I, I am jaded on some of this stuff from going through a lot of the different uh, classes and, and different instructions. When I say I'm not jaded, I'm realistic and practical. I if I'm to that point, I'm in pretty fucking big trouble, right? Like, and I'm not saying don't learn that because it is important. Obviously, it was important enough to me to at least. Um, learn them and, and, and occasionally um, try to apply that even today. Um, I think, though, with with going along the lines with what Kevin said, having what you need with you uh, and knowing how to use those different, I say devices, not devices, but like you said, a match. Even a match has to be struck the right way. I agree with Kevin 100%. You see a guy grab the end, snaps three of them off before he starts the match, those three could become life or death later on, and you'll kill somebody to have those three matches back. Americans are so soft and take so many things for granted. In other countries, people kill for what we throw away every day. Learning to be very resourceful and uh, you know, taking care of what you have and learning how to use what you have, I, I mean, I agree, is, is, is very important. Now, what do you – I have long burn matches that I carry in a waterproof case. I generally bring those, and then I have – um. I say it's a flint and steel. It's a ferro rod for all of you listening. Um, and then I have a couple Bic lighters. That's generally what I bring. Um, what do you usually take for, for like your primary, like possibles pouch your kit? Yeah. So I, a lot of guys will say you should carry five or six different ways of making a fire. And I kind of agree with that, but I don't really, you know, I think you should have a few different ways to make a fire, but if you start getting into five or six different ways, are you really concerned about making a fire or showing off how many cool ways you can make a fire? Uh, the Bic lighter, I mean, you think about it, a Bic lighter can do a thousand one second flames. That's a hell of a lot better than carrying two boxes of, you know, 500 counts of matches. Um, I carry matches with me. I carry the Stormproof uh, matches from Yuko. And I like those because even if a person doesn't know how to use a ferro rod, if they find my kit, let's say that I get knocked in the head, I get knocked down, you know, angry girlfriend or something like that. She can still make a fire using my kit because, you know, she knows how to use that. I mean, she does know how to use a ferro rod, but matches are something like every little kid should know how to use matches. And I mean, if you're an American kid, age of 13 and you haven't burnt off your eyebrows at least once in your childhood, you haven't really lived. But um, they can play World of Warcraft, oh, I guarantee. Yeah. Or, for, or Fortnite. <laughs> Fortnite's awesome. Um, so yeah, I carry a ferro rod. That's my primary. Ferro rod and some and some uh, Vaseline and cotton. Primary. Everywhere I go. Uh, carry a Bic lighter. I don't smoke cigarettes. I'll have the occasional cigar, but I carry a Bic lighter every single day. Except I think Patrick took my Bic lighter recently this weekend and I, I don't know if, if I don't, th- I don't think it's my pocket because I think he literally took it from me. Um, <laughs> and then I, I, carry, uh, I carry some matches with me, like I said, just as a, a last backup. If I need flame instead of spark, that's the way I go. So those three. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I'm in agreement. I have um, the, uh, the long burn matches. Uh, they are stormproof that I use. Um, a lot of seasons, I'll go the entire season, the damn thing's still full because I use a Bic lighter and the ferro rod so much. And I've gotten to a point, if it's a really – long um for us when i say us for backpack hunters weight is 
huge, right? Of what we got to carry on our back and still be efficient while we're in the field. It, 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 at some point in time, you carry so much shit, you're ineffective. When I say ineffective, meaning physically, you're just not, you just got too much weight on your back. One of the reasons I don't do the cotton balls and the Vaseline is laziness, um, making them, right? The trioxane tablets I've had way better luck with. I mean, both work well, but I've still, I have to buy the, the trioxane, right? It's not free where cotton balls and Vaseline aren't free, but as far as cost effectiveness, way more cost effective than a trioxane tablet. But um, I'll, I'll start my stove. If I don't have an igniter on my stove, I'll just take the ferro rod and strike it. It works just as well as a, as a lighter does, right? You can use the lighter. It, it doesn't really matter. But I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at, for example, is like on Mount Baker, um, the condensation we're on Baker because it rains so much, your, your Bic lighter will sometimes get wet, but that it always strikes, right? The ferro rod, no matter how wet it is, spark is coming off that. And it, at times I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just use that ferro rod to, to get my stove going. And I may use that then, not that you want to put a bunch of heat next to your, you know, lighter that can blow up. But I mean, I will use some of that heat to dry out my lighter, uh, to get it in a dry place. So I, you know, constantly trying to keep that thing dry because the, the condensation is just so bad up there. Having the, uh, the common sense to know how to use all that stuff and when to use what and being efficient as you can is, is important. And I think people like you teaching that stuff is huge. And, the way that the world is going now, it seems like it's all or nothing, meaning people are fully just surrounded in this stuff, um, in the survival aspect of it, or they don't care and they don't learn it at all or anything, or at least that's what I'm kind of dealing with at yeah, this point. They say stuff like, oh, that could never happen to me. You know, they, they love playing that, that narrative through their head. Oh, it could never happen to me when the reality is it could happen to anyone. The deciding factor is, are you, are you ready for it? Have you thought it through? Have you run those mental repetitions of what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, or again, are you playing ignorant and just saying it could never happen to me? Right. And I, you know, I mean, you, you think about it, it's not that far-fetched. I mean, you're probably not going to wreck an airplane, survive, you know, not not die in a plane crash and then, you know, have the shit you need and find it in the, uh, you know, checked baggage and then make it. You could. But I think um, vehicle issues are huge. Um, you know, God forbid you don't have a cell phone tower around, but there's still places all over the U.S. if you drive um, that you don't have cell service. Car problems are constant. Are you going to die? Well, you, they're with the wrong weather, it happens. I mean, you can Google it. You'll find lots of people that got stuck in blizzards and, and having – well, plus, I mean, as far as not, – not, not trying to be so chauvinistic, it's part of being a man, right, in my opinion. Like, do you want to be a man that plays Call of Duty um, and, you know, whatever, drinks? Or do you want to be a man that knows how to split firewood and start a fire? I think it's things that are overlooked in this day and age that are still important, even though technology has kind of pushed us away from that. And, of course, that's opinions from my little pea brain. But I, I strongly think people should learn all these. Now, do you um, do you go into much of the, the deadfalls, the snares, the things like that? So – uh, in terms of like primitive trapping and hunting and whatnot, I show a variety of different different ways of, of catching animals, things that have worked, things that I've done in my backyard when I was a little kid, definitely illegally when I was a little kid before I knew any better. You know, my dad taught me a bunch of them. I learned a lot of them through Marty Simon and I learned a lot of them through, you know, my friends that are really, really proficient in trapping. I just don't do enough trapping to really, really get in incredible depth into it. But I do show people how to carve a deadfall. I show people how to do a toggle, uh, you know, trap trigger. I show 
people how to, you know, do twitch ups and, and how to make a variety of different trap triggers, squirrel snares and whatnot. And I've used all of them to, in some capacity. Um, one thing that I don't go into, into great depth on because it really requires a lifetime of study is animal habitat. You know, I could show someone how to set up a mouse trap, but if they put it in the center of a room, it's not going to catch a single mouse because they're not going to run out in the open. So, you know, when I show and when I say I don't go into depth, I'm going to show you how to make all of these trap triggers. I'm going to show you how to make all these devices that will work and we could get them to work. Um, but you really need to learn animal habitat. You really need to learn animal uh, behavior. And once you get that down, you can figure out how to how to set your trap, right? So I always say that trapping and snaring and, and all these primitive methods of making spears and, and you know hunting weapons, that's 10% of the equation. 90% is knowing your prey, knowing your adversary, knowing what you're going after. Otherwise, you're you're equipped, but you're just not aware, and that's not ready. No, I mean I I agree. Um, well, it's you know I I'm a girlfriend fiance, and she's not she was not into hunting or any at all. And so now hiking around with her, right? Like I explain to her all the time, animal behavior, like you're talking about, because, you know, in a, in a very crude way to look at, there's always a way to kill an animal. There's always a place he's going to sleep or she, there's a place they're going to, they have to eat, they have to drink, they have to sleep. All right. At different times of the year, unless you're a rabbit or some other animals, you're going to breed at that time. Knowing all of those, um, where they happen and traveling to where they happen, including little animals, knowing those is going to be the key to victory um, as far as on a survival situation on where to place those those traps. And, and I do agree that is not something that can be taught in a short period of time. It just, it just can't. But um, if you know what the track looks like, which is something else that um, I don't know if you go into because it, it is a pain to go into everything. Um, tracking is another huge, is another lost art that is that is huge, and not just for hunting applications. But I mean, let's say something's in, stuck in your your wall of your. I mean, I'm I'm going off of actual shit, not hypotheticals. These are true stories. Trying to figure out what's in the wall of your garage or your house. Well, you don't have to guess or wait to see it if you can look at the fucking track, right? Like to go outside, you'll figure it out pretty quickly. Generally, it's going to be a raccoon or a squirrel. But usually, and a good example, and I did this at the neighbor's house, I made mud and I made it wet, right, where it looked like they were probably potentially entering. And it took like, you know, that night, the next morning, the tracks are wet and you can see what it is, exactly what's going in and out. But that's a very oversimplified story. But learning uh, or having the common sense of, okay, there, here's a game trail, here's a fence, here's the most well-used path. Okay, now that I know something's going through here, small tracks it's going underneath this set of let's say barbed wire kevin what he teaches is going to show you the trap that's going to work best to go in that specific spot meaning like a twitch up is going to be uh generally work better for certain animals in certain areas and applications compared to just a straight up snare snares are super simple and if it's something going under a fence and you just basically drop a noose down for them to run through those are super easy you won't need a twitch up for that because their body is doing the work for them um, now how much of that type of stuff do you go into so so talking about this whole trapping and snaring thing and you know you mentioned tracking here's a survival instructor pet peeve when i hear someone refer to an animal sign as a track 
you know, and that's a difference. Like there's tracking and then there's signing, you know, like you need to know like, all right, that's animal shit. That's animal scat. That's, you know, that's where they just ate. That's not a track. That's a sign. What you just said, how, how there are certain places where you want to set certain traps. Well, certain ones are going to work correctly in, in certain situations. Like if you only know deadfalls, but there's not enough natural, you know, materials to use to create, you know, uh, traps that are going to be crushing traps. Well, you have a very limited application of, of your knowledge. Some traps like Aaron mentioned, you know, like, like the snares, an animal that's a fast moving animal is going to run through that snare and either choke itself out through its head, choke itself out through head and an arm, like, a, you know, a head and arm. It's going to trap around its waist or it might trap the two back feet. So sometimes you need traps that are going to be lifting traps, something that has a counterweight or, you know, I'm not a big fan of the bent sapling traps because eventually the trees take a set. But, you know, if you use a, a counterweight that weighs five pounds, 20 years from now, that five pound weight is still going to be five pounds. So you need to know how to apply all these different concepts. And I find that that's really the uh, a successful way of learning trapping and snaring is have a few universal concepts that you can apply, you know, given what environment, what situation you have in front of you. And if you just, like I said, if you just know one trick, well, you're going to have a very, very limited way of, of pr- putting food on your table because – you know, that not every single animal is going to fall for every single or for a, the same type of trap. You got to you got to specialize. You got to know how big the loop has to be on your snare. You have to know how much weight is needed to crush a particular animal. Again, all of that comes from a long time of study. And this is something that I can kind of, you know, walk you to the door and give you the, the tools that you need to, you know, get into the room when you get there. But you got to spend time in that room. You got to you got to spend time in that animal's backyard, learn that animal, see where it goes. And, you know, it, it's totally practical. Um, but again, <laughs> it's not going to be learned in it's not going to all be learned in one day or, or three days or whatever you have. Right. Did I screw up your pet peeve? Did I say it correctly? No, no, you were you were good. Oh, but, okay, see, there you go, people. I was good. But there are the, there are these online and these you know Hollywood celebrity survivalists, you know, fifteen minutes of fame survivalists that drive me crazy. I can't watch ninety percent of the shows that are out there because I want to throw a tomahawk through the TV or, or just I, w- I want to kill something or, or <laughs> like I like I feel like I need to go to like jujitsu and choke someone out like after afterwards and be like God damn it, you said snare, <laughs> you know? Oh, that's funny. Well, and I mean. People, if you ever do get lost, pray to God that you get lost around marmots because they are the easiest thing to kill. Um, in, in my opinion, when it comes to, to snaring and deadfalls, and the marmot is awesome. There's tons of them. They taste pretty good. Uh, they're dumb um, for the most part. They're very repeatable um, for the most part. So, like, you give me a figure four deadfall in marmot country, we're eating good, right? But, like... You're talking about the application-wise, you can't do a twitch up, no trees, right? They're above tree line where we're at, um, you know, and um, you are you will have to reinvent the wheel, meaning you're going to have to pack things in. The snares aren't going to work overly well. It's hard to tie them to different spots, but the figure four deadfall with a trigger set or whatever, I'm not an expert at that, um, is going to be quite a bit easier to do for, for marmots as an example, so... Um, so what else, what other things do you go over in that? Uh, something that's really common is shelter. You know, we go over what you could carry on you. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer that your first line of shelter is the clothing that you're wearing. You know, too many people walk out of the house every single day with just like their, their high heels on, um, you know, 
talking about the ladies here, hopefully, uh, they uh, they come out with only their high heels on and they don't carry a spare set of you know shoes in their car in case the car breaks down and they have to walk. Too many guys go to the gym and they only wear a T-shirt when they jump in their car. They say, oh, it's only five miles down the road. Well, you can go into a ditch in five miles and now you only have a T-shirt and you're stuck in your car. Um, so I go over shelter, how to make it out of natural materials, how to make shelters with various ponchos, um, various ways of signaling. Uh, including, you know, the auditory signals, how to make uh, signals out of a soda can, how to do visual signals with smoke or, or you know, with a chemical light stick. Um, all the all the basic essentials, a lot of knife craft, you know, learning how to use a knife, how to use it properly, all the different grips that you're going to use. I mean, there, there's so much material that that's covered in like a, a typical class. Um, you know, I don't go into a lot of first aid. That's another pet peeve of mine when you go to a survival school or a survival class and you know, three days are covered and it's all first aid. Well, there are plenty of first aid classes you can take that are dedicated first aid. You know, go to a survival instructor or a bushcraft instructor to learn those skills. Don't go there to learn first aid. Um, but I do go over how to cover, how to properly apply a tourniquet. Um, I do go over some of the, the very basics uh, of more trauma, again, that will get you into an emergency. Like a little nick on your finger is not gonna not gonna kill you. But let's say that you're out hunting and there's an actual accidental gunshot wound or you fall on a broadhead or whatever it may be. You need to know how to address those those types of uh, scenarios. So uh, you know, shelter, fire, how to purify water, um, and then there's always challenges. You know, asking students to to make a fire in under 30 minutes and you're gonna do a one match fire, but you're only gonna be able to use half of a of a paper match that you split. We did that one last week, and out of seven students that I had, only two were able to get a fire going that sustained for any given amount of time. Most people couldn't get the match to ignite their tinder. And again, they this is at the very end of the training. They were overly confident. Um, and they all admitted it. They said, well, we just took it for granted that it was going to work. And they they fell into that complacency. So there's, I mean, there's skill after skill after skill that's covered. And that's really the focus of all the stuff that I teach. I want, I want students to learn the hard skills. I'm not going to go in there and, and tell them, hey, you're going to pray to the God of the trees or any of this stuff. Um, if a person wants to find religion or find spirituality, that's on them. It's not my place. I'm not a, a holy man to teach them. Um, you know, I have my own faith and my own spirituality, but that's none of your business unless you want to know. And you ask me. Uh, I'm going to deliver skills. And I think that's that's the most important thing, skills and knowledge. Do you, do you get that sometimes where people will go into the class that are wanting to become kind of one with the, the earth uh, or one with, I don't know what you would call that, but that are basically wanting to go to learn the skills to do, go do a walkabout like the guy that lived in the bus and died. Do you get, uh, do you get that sometimes? There's a lot of romantic ideas. Oh, I'm going to survive off the land with just a 22 and a fishing pole. There's a lot of there's a lot of people that think, "Hey, I can do this." And they're used to eating three square meals a day, maybe more, with thousands of calories in their diet, and they're not used to, you know, foraging along the way. They're not used to ever pushing themselves, you know, great limits. They they want they want the experience, but they don't want the the hard-earned uh the hard-earned skills that go with it. Um, there's a there's a lot of people that do that. I, I can't stand it when I'm I, I've got a big fire going and I'm teaching my students and someone's walking around barefoot. You know, there's there's plenty of guys that think, oh, barefoot's the way to go. It gets me in tune with nature. It's like, well, yeah, it th- those are during peaceful times. Yeah. You know, and most indigenous populations, pretty much all of them, when they learned about footwear, they're no longer barefoot. You know, there's a reason for that. Um, you know, go go fight a war with, you know, completely barefoot. Um, go run over something really sharp. 
think of 9-11. Think of the worst possible scenario. Do you really want to walk around barefoot with all that broken glass? Um, I can't stand that. You know, I'll wear occasional like a pair of sandals. Like if I'm going like, you know, leaving my tent at night and, and you know, going over to, you know, where we have the, uh, you know, like the latrine set up. But I'm not I don't like wearing sandals. I think you're you're uh, you know, you're very unprepared to do anything of of any value in a pair of sandals or barefoot. No, you're you're right. Um, it, that's funny you bring that up because I've actually got to the point as strange as this is. I work out in my boots, um, the ones like I have on now, and even my uh, my my girlfriend, fiance, she uh, um, she's like, "Why do you do that?" And I said, "You know, it got to a point where I'm not a gym rat anymore. Right? That's not my my thing. Right? I'm not. I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything. I'm not saying do this. I'm just saying for me. Um, I'm like, well, I'm in my boots all the time, and really, I need to be." uh as comfortable i can in these boots all the time so is it you know i'm not lifting crazy i'm not doing these crazy olympic lifts i'm just in there doing pull-ups and push-ups and some you know simple i mean it's a hard workout but it's nothing that my footwear is going to hold me back on and it's just getting me used to wearing that footwear i'm not saying i run in my boots or anything else but it got to a point where I'm like, why am I changing into a whole new outfit to go to the gym? Now, if you're taking martial arts, totally different story. But if I'm just going to the gym for 20 or 30 minutes for me, I'm like, I'm just going to keep my pants on. I wear the same hiking pants every day that I do out in the woods anyway. And it was just weird because I had a lot of people from telling me to wear five toe sandals, which I, which I don't like personally. And that, I wear too stiff of boots or, you know, guys wear too flexible or whatever. And I thought, you know, for me, I'm just going to wear boots pretty much all the time, which I do just so my feet are comfortable, my body's comfortable. I know guys that'll get like sore backs because they'll go from tennis shoes to a boot, but they put the boot on the same day they go take off for this long trip and it throws their gait off or or whatever, or the boot's not broken in. And so it's, it's funny you bring that up. Of course, I'm kind of I'm with you on the barefoot thing. Like I, I hear guys telling me to go do long distance runs and bare feet to strengthen my foot. And I'm like, man, I, can, I just don't agree with that myself. But <laughs> yeah. And acorns are bastards. I, uh, I used to coach track and field and, and I tried the barefoot thing for a while. And yeah, you definitely, you learn a, a, a different type of running and like you're not heel striking when you barefoot run, you're, you're landing midfoot or you're landing on the ball of your foot. And you cannot run the same distance. You run, you tend to run faster. You just can't run the same distance when you first start off barefoot running. But acorns are bastards. You step on one of those barefoot and you have, yeah, you have to stop. You know, you could be the toughest guy in the world. You step on an acorn and it just drops you. Yeah. No, for sure. There's, I don't have a TV, but my buddy sent me links to this uh, series or whatever where uh, it's these two guys. One of them's more of a uh, a barefoot natural dude. The other's a former military guy. But the one guy was in his bare feet all the time. And I looked at it and said, man, that's just not that efficient. Not saying it can't be done. It's just for the, the things you're bringing up, especially for um, uh, you know, trying to get your feet prepped for that. It would take a lifetime to get them tough enough to even do that, which I, I guess you can. Uh, you know, possible. It's yeah. just not, not me. <laughs> my, da- my dad's from the Philippines. I mean, I learned a lot of the survival skills from him. Uh, you know, he grew up 
from 1941 to 1945, literally in the jungle when the Japanese Imperial Army invaded my father's hometown. So when people say, oh, bugging out isn't real, I'm like, really? Really? Um, but my dad, you know, being a, a Filipino dude, you know, a guy, an island boy, a jungle boy, when he saw that show where the guy was walking around barefoot, he goes, this guy's an asshole. He goes, <laughs> he goes, he, he, he's, a, he's a wealthy TV show star. He has access to boots. He's walking around in the jungle barefoot. He goes, no one in the jungle walks around barefoot. My, my dad is, is the nicest, the calmest, the most lovable guy in the world. When he saw that, he had to turn off the channel. He said, that is totally unrealistic. If anyone's doing that, they are an idiot. And, and listen, I, I know who the guy is that, that we're talking about. I think we all know who he is. He's very knowledgeable in his craft, but you cannot change thousands of years of evolution in one lifetime to change your, your molecular you know, physiology, to change your, you know, everything that makes you who you are in one lifetime. If it took thousands of years to change you're not going to change it overnight like I'm, I'm sorry it just drives me nuts yeah no i yeah that's yeah exactly that was a way better explaining it than i did it's just not common sense i guess is kind of out the window on that but it does look good for tv i guess um so as far as um just because we're about that we're hitting an hour here as far as um uh, just, we haven't brought it up at all. The Kafaru products, which is how we met. How much of the stuff that we use do you integrate into what you're like? Do you do you use much for our shelters? I know you use our pack some, and and how much? Um, how important do you think that is to have like a bug out bag and things like that? So I use a lot of the Kafaru gear. If anyone's taken my class, you've seen it pretty much everywhere. I was just talking to to Angie over here, and I said how since 2007, when I first started carrying you know, a tail gunner as my my primary pack when I teach, and I would use a tail gunner for a three-day you know, field exercise where you know, that's all we're carrying is that a bag that size. I've, God, I've used your stuff. The sheep tarp I use a lot. Um, you know, I use the packs all the time, the pullout bags all the time for organization. Um, I'm not a big fan of survival kits that fit into little Altoid tins. You know, I know that a lot of guys like, you know, packing stuff together with like tweezers and a magnifying glass. I'd rather just take a whole bunch of little things that I need and throw it into an, uh, a small possibles pouch, uh, like a pullout. Um, the stuff sacks, I use the slick bag all the time. I use a lot of the gear because, you know, it, it just works. You know, my friend Jerry turned me onto it and I've been turning students onto it ever since. Um, you know, I've had access as a writer and as someone who's worked in the retail before in the outdoors community, I've had access to every single possible, you know, bit of kit that's out there. And I, I stick with Kafara for a reason. Um, you know, after a while, you know, your bug out bag becomes like your everyday bag and you start realizing, okay. I could either carry this bag and, and use it only in emergencies, or I could be ready every single day with some basics like a flashlight, spare batteries, you know, cell phone charger, tourniquet, you know, spare ammo for your gun if you're able to carry it legally. Um, so I use this stuff all the time. Um, you know, and I, I, like I said, I have access to everything else I could possibly imagine, but I, I always come back here. It's, it's what I prefer. It's my number one top recommendation. No, no, I'm glad, yeah, and we're glad to have you on board. Obviously, you're in the field. I, I don't get to talk to you as much as I'd, I'd like to. Just I'm gone way too much my, you know, myself. But I think what you're doing and what people like you are doing is is important in, in uh, like, the, the bug-out bag or whatever. You know, I look at a bug-out bag a little bit differently. I, I suggest for people all the time to have, like, a, an E&E, for example, an escape and evade. But having that in your car loaded up with – 
I mean, it's not going to kill you to have some flares in there and a headlamp, um, you know, things of that nature, backup prescriptions. I mean, a lot of things people don't think about that, that you may not necessarily teach in your class, but just being stuck in the car overnight, if you're a person that's used to caffeine, you going to die? No, but it is nice to have coffee in the morning and be able to heat the water. If you have um, prescribed contacts, migraines, if you, oh, if God forbid, you go without Prozac, right? If you're a crazy person and you need to take Prozac for a chemical imbalance, those things are all important, I think, to keep in your car. And uh, especially if you travel or anything like that. And even though it may not be directly related with um, survival, right? It, it is related with self-reliance, I guess you could say, and, and, and things like that. And what you teach definitely kind of echoes or ripples into all these other different things for people to think ahead rather than just take for granted what's what you, what we have. You know, things aren't always going to be perfect and, and being prepared for that is important. And, and here's something that I tell a lot of people. I'm like, they come to my class for all the different reasons. You know, you got guys that want to look really cool in front of their kid. That's the boy scout, or I'm sorry, now just scouts, right? Um, crazy. Isn't it? <laughs> you get a lot of people that say, Hey, I want to learn to live off the land or I want to do this and that, you know, and at the end of the course or at the end of the class, I always have people say, well, God, I, I put myself through absolute hell this weekend. I, I embrace the suck, I, you know, I, all these cool terms. And they say, well, when I get back to, you know, doing work at work, it's not really work. You yeah. know, oh my God, I had to, I had to do this. My hands are freezing all weekend. And now, well, okay, I just have to type up a report. Well, <laughs> you know, people, people need to experience hardship to realize how good they actually have it. And, you know, I think that's really important too. No, no, for for sure. And I mean, not to drag this on too long, but you bring things like that up. You know, you'll see on certain forums, for example, hunting. I don't get on the survival forums, honestly, because I'll lose my shit on a lot of those. I just can't handle some of the ignorance and, and a-holes. And especially if you actually finally get to see a picture of the person and get some of the back, their backstory. You know, it's the mom, you know, where's my hot pocket thing, right? It's like it's easy to read a bunch of shit and spout off like you know what you're doing. On a, and I see that a lot on those survival forums where I just don't even want to get on there anymore. But on hunting forums, you'll see guys type like, okay, you've got an elk down, it's starting to snow, and your budding's starting to shiver. Um, he's hypothermic, what do you do? Or something like that. And it's like, okay, for one, that isn't a survival situation in my opinion because that shit happens every day almost when it's cold out, right? But, you know, assess it, right? What did you do to get you to shivering? Okay, Something got you there. You probably had too many clothes on to begin with, so you sweated like a son of a bitch. And then when you stopped, you forgot the fact to maybe swap out the wet clothes you had or, or throw an additional layer on. Or you're not wearing merino wool or a good synthetic. Like, is that the Arcteryx Naga? Uh, this is from Prometheus Design Works. Uh, it's – it's uh, God, I forgot the exact name of it. My buddy Patrick over there is going to kill me. But it's uh, it's basically like a, like an athletic hoodie. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, it's the same. Um, and I've seen some stuff for Prometheus. I've never ran it, but it, it's it's. I have one like that from Arcteryx. It's called the the Naga, mm -hmm. but um, that one actually looks like it's formed a little better. But for for example, that's what I would call an intermediate fleece layer. Um, below that, you're going to have a base layer and maybe potentially another base layer over the top of that. One of the first one of the things that I've learned high, above and beyond anything for basics is when you hike in, and again, this has been three different girlfriends, this has happened, you hike in for four miles, you stop. And I'm like, all right, swap out your shit, get that shirt off, get a new one on, throw on this. No, no, I'm warm. 
no, no, you're warm now. You're not going to be warm soon. Like you need to, because what's on your body, as soon as your body core drops, as, as well as the elements around you, then you're going to shiver, then you're going to freeze, all right? There, there are certain steps and things you need to do, including clothing, as much, uh, you know, so you're not in that position. So what got you to the point of shivering? Okay, can you walk it off? There's different levels of shivering. I shiver all the time. I get cold easy. Okay, if the animal's on the ground and you're shivering, I pretty much can guarantee you just cutting up the animal alone because that fucker's warm and you're going to be moving. You won't be shivering shortly after that because you're going to be moving. And I don't think people, movement is survival. People, I don't think, understand that. Like, there's going to be a time where you may not be able to build a fire. You, you're not warm enough. You can't feel your hands. Movement, I mean, and I say that all the time, but movement is survival. Um, and I would imagine, like, when you go through a, a, a course like with what you're talking about, you're going to learn all these things, and maybe you already know them, but you don't put them at the forefront of your mind. Sometimes you need someone like Kevin to kick you in the head so that common sense is a little bit more common or something that you probably already know, but you actually think about it more, or put that maybe a little bit more of a pinnacle in your mind in these different situations. Now, do you agree or, or does that did, did I say anything out of there that was maybe out of line that you would disagree with? No, 100% in agreement there. You know, a lot of people... You know, you want you want to go on these hunting trips. You want to go on these fishing trips. You want to learn all these skills. But you, like you said, movement's life. Uh, you have to be healthy, you know, to start off with. Um, you know, if before you decide to go and put yourself out and, you know, 20, mil, 20 miles out into the wilderness, all alone, self-supported, self um, what you should do is you should learn to get healthy first. Um, you should learn, you know, all the, all the gear that you need to carry. You should learn to, uh, to weed out the wrong gear by experiencing things in a more controlled setting, even if it's in your backyard, trying stuff out, you know, for the first time where, where you have that, that security blanket of going back inside or having a buddy that has a heated tent or whatever. Um, you know, a lot of people, they just don't think logically. It's all emotional order of thinking. Um, you know, they, they don't, they, they don't stop and slow down or they don't, uh, take time to observe, uh, and process and do the right thing. So, yeah, I think you're, you're totally spot on. I mean, just keep moving, uh, never, never become complacent, you know, and if, if you think, you know, everything, or if you feel like, Hey, uh, you know, I've, I've been here a thousand times before, then you're, you're setting yourself up for failure because you can always learn from a scenario and, and God, um, I, I mean, I think I'll, I think it's so important to, to learn that the learning never ends. Oh, yeah, no, it definitely does not. I'm actually looking up for your hoodie right now, trying to find it, because that thing is pretty badass. Is it uh, Prometheus Design Works or Prometheus, what is it called? Yeah, Prometheus Design Works. Um, Patrick uh, is the owner, Patrick Ma, and he's a he's a stud in of himself. If you guys want to see someone who embodies like someone who just gets out there and keeps moving, he does all overlanding. He goes diving in the Sea of Cortez to cut away poachers' nets, like... Prometheus is a good company, a good American company too. And, you know, uh, I mentioned that, you know, I work with you guys here at Kafaro and he's like, oh, I love the, the, their stuff too. So there's a lot of mutual respect there. I'm going to um, have to call them and swap for some of this shit because their clothing's pretty badass. Yeah. If you want, you can try this one on. We're about the same size and you can see how it fits. It's, it's all form fitted and, you know, it, it doesn't feel like you're wearing a poncho around and, you know, it's just, there's good attention to detail, like the way that they, they make everything. Oh, yeah. No, they've got all kinds of stuff on that website. So it's um, Prometheus Design Works and it's W-E-R-X for those that want to check it out. Um, yeah, the uh, yeah the clothing thing. We go on and on. Probably, probably just do a Skype podcast later on. But um, 
All of the things that we've talked about today, definitely, uh, Kevin, why don't you go over um, the places they can find you one more time? Yeah. And, and here's the thing, guys, like I'm I'm always open to answering emails. I'm always open to, to responding to messages on, on Facebook and on Insta- uh, Instagram and whatnot. You guys hear that? Him, not yeah. me. Him. Yeah, yeah. Feel, free to, <laughs> feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'm pretty laid back. I mean, nothing really is going to bother me. Uh, I only worry about the the opinions of my really, really close friends and family. So if you're a total stranger and you tell me, hey, your forehead's too big, I'm be like, yeah, I know, whatever. Um, but yeah, you can reach out to me. Uh, KevinEstella.com is my website. Instagram, Twitter, Estella Wild Ed. Uh, and Facebook, it's Estella Wilderness Education. Um, you guys can reach out to me at any time whatsoever, ask me questions. I'll give you a very straightforward answer. And, uh, you know, like I said, that, that offer always stands. You know, my job, I'm a high school history teacher. I'm an educator overall. And, you know, my job is to make sure that people get out there with the right knowledge. And I won't let my ego or the things I've done get in the way of, of providing someone with what they need. So reach out to me. And, you know, if you guys ever have a question, you know, if I don't know it, I'm going to find the right person that will give you the answer. So uh, I'm happy to help out. That's it. Well, man, I appreciate everything you do for Kafaro. I appreciate you coming on here. And definitely, I, I strongly urge people, especially on the, the, the survival land nav portion, land nav, because I know how many questions I get, I get uh, about that. Don't be afraid. Get a hold of Kevin and attend one of his uh, classes. Maybe get a group of buddies and get out there um, or fly him out because it, it's, 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 it's very, very important. And finding someone that actually knows how to do it is difficult. So, yes, yeah, thanks again for coming on and everything that you do. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.